Lundin Lopate at large. I'm Lundin Lopate. The nature of China's economy following Mao Zedong's death in 1976, I'm sorry, has remained something of a mystery to most Western observers. In his latest book, Frank Dakota argues that despite what some Western observers have claimed, every one of Mao's successors has been committed to maintaining state control of the economy and the maintenance of the Chinese Communist Party's Leninist Maoist dictatorship. His book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, is published by Bloomsbury and brings Frank Dakota, Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and the author of books about Mao's Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me again. Are you arguing in this book that the conventional view of China's rise to reform is incorrect? Yes, very much so. I think we've heard, um, well, I went to China as a student in uh, the middle of the 1980s, before the massacre on Tiananmen Square in June 1989. Uh, and even after the population of Beijing was crushed by about 100 tanks and 200 tanks and 100,000 soldiers, um, Time and again, it was the same story by the China watchers. Uh, we must help China to reform and open up because with economic reform, political reform will inevitably follow. Well, I think we're still waiting. Well, you describe the current situation as resembling, quote, a tanker that looks impressively shipshape from a distance with the captain and his lieutenants standing proudly on the bridge, while below deck, sailors are desperately pumping water and plugging holes to keep the vessel afloat. Pretty much so. So just to come back to your first question, did we get it wrong? Well, we got it wrong about political reform. That much is obvious. Yet still, we have uh, an, an, an astonishing number of specialists who tell us that there really truly was reform of the economy, that we've really moved away from the plan towards the markets. Uh, that too, I think, is a misconception. All along, from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping, there has been a very keen desire to maintain a firm grip over the commanding heights of the economy, or to put it in Marxist terms, the Communist Party is determined to maintain a monopoly over the means of production. That means that the banks belong to the state, the land belongs to the state, energy is distributed by the state, raw resources are controlled by the state, etc., etc. Um, as a result, I think, vast amounts of money have been used to project an image of economic uh, growth, if not a miracle, uh, yet underneath um, it all looks uh, rather it all looks rather unstable. If you look now at the amount of that, it is truly astonishing. So is the, uh, the what I've heard that China was once uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, it was in 1976, now has the second largest economy in the world. And according to the IMF, it's expected to contribute one third of total, total global growth this year. Is that incorrect? Well, it, it all depends on how you look at it. One great continuity between China and the Mao, I mean, a real rigid collectivized economy, and the, 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 the 30, 40 years uh, which follow to this day, one great continuity is that 
ordinary people get a very small share of GDP. In other words, while there might be creation of wealth, the vast majority of that goes into the coffers of the state controlled by the Communist Party. So don't take my word for it. Number two, Li Keqiang, a few years ago, um, said that about 650 million people have to get by on a miserable little amount of something like 150 dollars uh, per, per month. But after Mao died, didn't Western statesmen and businessmen argue that economic development in China would lead to political reform because it would allow China's rulers, led by Deng Xiaoping, to discard Marxism for a form of capitalism? You're saying that didn't actually happen. Uh, yes. In fact, in fact, you quote Deng Xiaoping as telling his party subordinates that, quote, we must keep to the socialist road. We must uphold the dictatorship of the proletariat. We must hold the leadership of the Communist Party. We must hold Marxism, Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. You are very well prepared. You just quoted what are referred to as the four cardinal principles inscribed into the Constitution in 1982 by Deng Xiaoping himself. And these four cardinal principles basically maintain your monopoly over power and maintain your control over the socialist economy, Marxism-Leninism. These principles are uh, repeated time and again by every single leader. The last time I heard it was by Xi Jinping in October uh, twenty. Uh, so the, the key point really is that you have a choice if you're a foreign businessman or a politician, uh, whether it's a Clinton or a Reagan, you could actually spend half an hour reading the Constitution and understand that these people are committed Marxist-Leninists, or you could, you could indulge in your own fantasy about what you think should happen in China or might happen. Time and again, the leaders have said, including Zhao Ziyang, by the, by the way, who was considered the most to be the most reform-minded reformer, all of them time again have said there will be no separation of powers. There will be no system uh, in which there are opposing parties. There will be no free elections. There will be no freedom of press. They said it time and again. And yet China claims to be the world's most democratic nation. <laughs> well, it is. Of course it is. It's called democratic centralism. Uh -huh. You see, one of the four cardinal principles you just invoked is maintain the dictatorship of the proletariat. So what is the view there? Well, it's a very classic Stalinist view, really, namely that you must have a dictatorship in order to ensure that the majority of people, in other words, the proletariat, can withstand all the wicked attempts by capitalists to undermine the system and rig it in their favor. So you have, on the one hand, what is openly referred to as the dictatorship of the proletariat. On the other hand, something called democratic centralism, in which you don't get to vote, ordinary people don't get to vote, but party members get to vote for their own leader within the one-party state. Now, of course, when they vote, they don't have much choice. Um, you... Um, you can either withhold your ballot or, or you can um, <laughs> you can cast it. I was wondering, so where does China's economy fit into the conventional definitions of capitalism or socialism? 
Well, it's socialism. It's, it's very simple. Uh, it, it has to do with the separation of powers. You you cannot have a a relatively free economy. Um, I hesitate to use the term capitalism. It's a term that Marxists use, you see, to disparage something that people have been doing from day one, namely trade. It, you need a an independent judicial system. You need protection of private property. Most of all, you need the ability to allocate your capital capital more or less freely. So when capital belongs to the state banks, it's not exactly capitalist. When the land, when not a single farmer owns a plot of land because all the land belongs to the state, it's not exactly capitalist. Um, <laughs> when, when the state has at its disposal enormous levels of control over the means of production in Marxist vocabulary, it is a socialist economy. That's what we've got. Also, might I add that that was precisely the goal. With the collapse of the economy on the Mao, uh, his successors were determined to shore up the socialist economy. But doesn't Mao remain a godlike figure despite his disastrous rule? Well, absolutely. The Soviets had a choice, you see. They had a Lenin and they had a Stalin. Both went to, into the mausoleum. So when Khrushchev in 1956 starts de-Stalinization, you can drag out the body of Uncle Joe, Stalin. In the case of the POC, more complicated, Mao is both the founding figure, the one who led the revolution, like Lenin, but, but also the man who, who pretty much established the system that continues to have such an overwhelming influence to this very day. So there's not a lot you can do. Um, he is a major figure on which the legitimacy of the party uh, rests. So um, I wouldn't expect his portrait to come down from Tiananmen Square anytime soon. Even as Mao allied with the United States against the Soviet Union in the Cold War, wasn't he planning to reverse what was called a century of humiliation at the hands of Western powers by eventually replacing the United States as the world's preeminent power? Well, that, that is, by definition, the goal of any communist country. Now, the, the, the attempt to displace what they refer to as the imperialist camp might be taken less seriously when it comes from, say, North Korea, although the missiles are pretty scary. But you've got to remember that from 49 to this very day, the so-called imperialist camp, what you and I would call democracies, is seen as a major threat to the existence of the communist camp. So the whole relationship from the very beginning has been portrayed as one of inevitable conflict and antagonism. After Mao, China's economy grew rapidly at times, but didn't it suffer from bouts of inflation, deflation, unemployment, and corruption? You show how China struggled initially because uh, key positions in the finance area went to party loyalists who lack sufficient technical knowledge. Yes. So this is another great difference with uh, a system based on the separation of powers and the free press and independent judicial system uh, as we have in, in democracies, more or less, not quite perfect. The point really is that it is not shopkeepers or traders or consumers or, or, or entrepreneurs who, who make major decisions. 
its members of the party. So you have a party committee in every single major institution. Take an example. If you go to the local bank anywhere in China and you want a loan, well, chances are that that loan will be determined by a party member. Hmm. And if you happen to be a party member yourself, chances are you will get that loan. So the extent to which, for instance, just to come up with one single example, the extent to which loans are being distributed to state enterprises and entrepreneurs in the countryside in 1988 is such that the bank responsible for paying farmers is bankrupt and they must issue IOUs, mm -hmm. worthless bits of paper. This is 1988. I picked this example because so often when we talk about 1989 and June the 4th, we see this as demonstrations by students who want something abstract. But it's not like that at all. In 1989, a great many people in the countryside are tired of being given pieces of paper, while ordinary people in the cities suffer rates of inflation of up to 48%. But didn't, China's, didn't China's leaders learn from their mistakes and import technology and investment ideas from Western nations? That's a Chinese saying, and it means politics comes first. So you can learn. Now, this is one of the great things when you dig into the archives, in particular archives from, from the Ministry of Finance and banks. You realize that all along, all along, there are economists and bankers who know exactly what is happening and who, who know exactly what the issues are. Unfortunately, they are not the ones to make the decisions. The decisions are always made uh, for political purposes by leading political cadres. My guest on today's London Lopez at Large is Frank Decotter. His latest book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, from Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What about the Western nations? Did they see all of this as the possibility of gaining over a billion new customers? Well, of course. And, and weren't I under the impression that China was privatizing, although, as you point out, it wasn't? Well, of course, there, there is this, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is the lure of a market of a billion customers. And then, to be fair, it is not just fantasies projected upon the People's Republic of China. It, it, these are real opportunities offered by the Communist Party in China. In, in other words, it does offer shares of major state enterprises. It does promise banking reform. It does promise reform of, 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 of the state sector. It does promise protection of copyrights. But these promises and pledges are broken time and again. I think one of the key points really must be roughly 1998, 99, when these endless promises and pledges actually lead the United States and, and, and then, of course, other countries to accept the membership of China into the WTO in 2001 without China being forced to do what all other countries must do, namely reform the uh, state enterprises, make a capital count, floatable, 
open it and have um, an exchange rate which fluctuates. So this is quite extraordinary that China managed to, to gain access to the WTO without fulfilling these very, very basic conditions. Well, and you know what the result is, of course. Foreign money poured into China, and fortunes were yes. made both in China and the West as a result of cheap labor costs and, and lax or non-existent environmental controls. But you, yes. have, you have been criticized for downplaying the private sector. Oh, well, let me give you um, an example. First of all, the policies themselves. Chiang Zemin, 1997, comes up with a policy, and it's called grab the big, let go of the small. It sounds slightly clunky in English. It's much more elegant in Chinese. Uh, but the point really is that he sees hundreds of thousands of state enterprises and smaller private ones, which somehow clutter the landscape. He wants to consolidate them into a couple of hundred giant conglomerates. That is what he does from 1997 onwards. In other words, much greater uh, state resources funneled into a small number of enterprises handpicked by the state. The result, 2005, roughly 96% of the assets of the 500 largest companies are controlled by the state. It's 2005. It gets worse afterwards. Uh, to the point where you wonder what is private and what is public. I mean, what is state controlled, what is private? The, the difference no longer exists in the sense that Chiang Zemin himself from the year 2000 onwards makes it compulsory even for a private enterprise to have a party committee, a party committee on his board. And the party committee is the one that makes the decisions. Not only that, but as we have seen in the case of, for instance, Alibaba and Jack Ma, you can be one great entrepreneur and be a Communist Party member and discover that from one day to the next, you're out. Hmm. In the worst case scenario, not only are you out, but all your assets now belong to the state. How much of a role has corruption played in these events? Well, it's fundamental. What happens in a one-party state is that since you cannot have journalists who will track down someone corrupt, you know, the merest whiff of corruption, they'll publish an article. Since you cannot have that, since there is no independent judicial system, um, since information doesn't circulate freely, since access to money is determined by power and membership of the party, it in effect means that theoretically just about every party member is corrupt, which is why you have constant campaigns against corruption. Don't think that this just started now. The first one to start a campaign against corruption within the party is Mao Zedong in 1950, one year after the red flag goes up over uh, the forbidden city. In, in other words, corruption is an endemic problem. It is systemic. It, well, it is a function of the system itself. In every system, actually, unfortunately. Yes, except that I could announce you for, for being corrupt. And, and you can invoke the law against me if you believe I'm corrupt. Try that one in the PRC. How much of an impact has the one-child policy had? Well, it is yet again one example of 
the unintended consequences of major decisions taken by political uh, leaders in a one-party state without any debate or possible opposition. But for years, the idea was we must control the population. Like, of course, they control everything else. Has it succeeded? Well, yes, you control the, the production of people, like you control the, the production of, say, steel. It has succeeded. The population is declining. And, and now, of course, it's the exact other way around. Encouragement for families to have more than one child. Haven't many of China's best and brightest left for more welcoming environments? That is true. And I might add to that, that it is not only the best and brightest who have left, it's also the wealthiest who are leaving right now. They're taking their money with them. Uh, where are they moving to? Um, well, nice places where they have rule of law and protection of private property. <laughs> places like, say, the imperialist camp, quote unquote, democracies. United States of America, Canada, Europe, anywhere. In 2021, a Chinese company bought land near an Air Force base in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Was that seen as a private thing, or, or is that the Chinese government wanted to be close to a U.S. Air Force base? Well, you see, one problem, one problem that Europeans have is to realize how extraordinarily big the United States is. I mean, you can fit Europe in there a few times. So was it a mere coincidence that they picked a plot of land right next to that strategic location? I don't know. You devote a chapter to the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, and you say that it should have served as a warning to the United States and Western statesmen about the limits of political liberalization in China. Why didn't it? Um, deep down, um, there are, I think, deep down are several reasons. One is, of course, the prospect of a billion customers. Um, but then also you got to realize by 1989, the Soviet Union is still there. So the real question is, why did they continue, not after 89, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union? And it was clear that they no longer needed the PRC as an ally against the Soviet Union. That really is the, the, the question. And I think the answer, besides, of course, just greed, is racism. The idea, and it's one that runs throughout the relationship between the United States and China, the idea that somehow Chinese communism can't possibly be real communism. These Chinese people are completely different. They're not like the Soviets, not like anyone else. They're not really capable of being true, committed communists. Their culture goes back a thousand of years. So that's a mistake that has been made before 1949, when the State um, the Department in the United States describes Mao Zedong and his communist army as basically agrarian reformers. It's made, again, of course, by, by Kissinger and Nixon, 71, 72. This is a great Confucian country of the Confucian past. Nothing to do with communism. And subsequently, also Bill Clinton and others who from 95 onwards uh, portray this as a country that's got no communist elements at all. Just help them along and they will magically transform themselves into a democracy. 
Is the mistake still being made today when we look at the complicated relationship between China and, and Russia? Well, you might think no, but the answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. Um, clearly, the, the, the whole, it's not just the, the United States, but Europe, Japan, South Korea, the whole world has changed its relationship with the PRC. It, it has a much more critical view now. But the key point really is that there are still far too many people who believe that this is all to do with one man, namely Xi Jinping, rather than a system that goes all the way back till 1949. So all too often the idea is if so only an that man could vanish. He's just an extension of the system that we've seen all he, along following he, Mao? He is not only an extension, he's a very logical extension. He is doing what his predecessors would have liked to do, but were unable to do. You got to remember the Cultural Revolution from 66 to, to 76, when Mao dies, is tremendously harmful to the, the, the structure of the Communist Party itself. A great many party members are purged, sometimes beaten, occasionally dying in prison. So the party comes out very weakened, and it takes decades to, to, to build it back up. And that's that's what has happened. Well, Chinese cities were built and modernized uh, in recent years. Modern infrastructures would develop, exports increased, but so did pollution. And when economic conditions worsened, didn't some Chinese citizens and intellectual complain and even protest? Uh, how did the government respond? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They complain and they protest and they are so stubborn and they are so courageous. Take a Liu Xiaobo protests in 1989 on Tiananmen Square of course sent to prison, comes back in 1995 to complain yet again about how in this system uh, power uh, allows access to money and how the system is corrupt, is arrested again, signs a charter in 2008 based on, on, on the one by Havel, the 2008 charter, is imprisoned in 2009 and, as you know, given a Nobel Prize but will die behind bars. And the Liu Xiaobo is the most famous one. But there are so many people, ordinary ones, who are so courageous and, and protest time and again. It, it is um, inspirational. But you say it's led to the rise of a surveillance state. Didn't surveillance cameras pop up everywhere and the great firewall uh, begin oh, yes. to, to censor the Internet? Yes, absolutely. This starts very much with the Olympics. You, you may remember the Olympics, uh, 2008, I believe, were meant to be this great uh, moment where China would embrace the world. Oh, that's the moment when cameras start spreading everywhere. That's also the year when a great number of people are being arrested. 2009 is the, the internet being controlled. 2010 is lawyers being arrested. It goes on and on. And by now, it is such a thoroughly entrenched dictatorship with so many means to control citizens online through cameras. Um, but it is 
just extraordinary that still people protest and still protests lead to results. One very simple example, the end of lockdowns until people started protesting in October 2022 and how blank pieces of paper as a form of protest. And from one day to the next, the whole lockdown policy was abandoned. But there have been successes as well. The security services were used to repress dissident groups like Falun Gong members and, and the Uyghurs. Absolutely. And the very people who protested in the Square earlier. Yes. Shouldn't that have it served as a warning to the United States and Western statesmen about whether there was any political liberalization in China? Well, it was very, I mean, a very early example with Jimmy Carter, who... Who, 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 who took pride in cultivating personal relationships with Soviet dissidents. And then when he was asked in 1980 or 81 whether he knew Wei Qingsheng, China's most prominent dissident, locked up in 1979 for proposing democracy, when he mentioned his name, Jimmy Carter said, I- I'm not aware of that person. And he is one of our... More president seen more favorably these days. Yes, indeed. You're indeed. listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Frank DeCotter. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give and the number two WBAI or 212-209-2950. But be sure to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Frank DeCotter, whose latest book is China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, published by Bloomsbury. He's chair professor of humanities at the University of Hong Kong, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, do you feel any uh, danger being in Hong Kong, considering uh, the China's uh, saber wa- uh, waving? No, absolutely not. No, I, I, I feel perfectly fine. Hong Kong is still a, a world apart from um, the mainland, as we call it. How much of these developments did you witness when you were affiliated with the Nankai University near Beijing? 
Well, I was there. My very first um, stay in China was from 1985 to 1987. And with hindsight, that seemed like a rather promising period. But I was also there from 1988 to 1989. And I remember vividly having lunch one day in May 1989 in Beijing and literally seeing the army outside on the main road and citizens rushing out to plead with them uh, to go back. And uh, and they succeeded. They but of were, course, they were coming the army for you? was back. Say it again? They were coming for you? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> so, I, But I, did, I was there until pretty much the uh, very day before on the 3rd of, 3rd of June. I, I left by train. It was the last train out of Beijing. I didn't know that. I learned that later on. But was that a good time to conduct research in what were then open archives in municipalities and provinces throughout China? No, it would have been unthinkable to to access archives at all. At the time, this may seem very odd to you, but at the time, my my claim to fame, so to speak, was being able to access libraries. Because very few uh, foreigners realized that after the Cultural Revolution, when all these libraries were closed, that they were gradually opening up. You had to really plead with the librarian to read particular books. But that, that was the big thing. you got to remember 1985, when I was a student, a photocopy machine was seen to be a very dangerous tool. <laughs> you had to apply to have something photocopied. So access to the archives, that started much later, roughly from 97, 98 onwards. Didn't you also gain access to the diaries of Li Rui? Who was he? Yes, Li Rui is a fantastic Ray, R-U-I, person. R-U-I, I didn't know how to pronounce yes, it. Yes, exactly. L-I is a surname and R-U-I, Li Rui. Um, his diaries have been donated by his daughter to the Hoover Institution, Manuscript Diaries. And he really kept a diary from, from, from just before 49 all the way till, I think, roughly 2000 and uh, and. 11, if if I'm not mistaken, and they are extraordinarily detailed. He was actually there, of course, in Beijing when the troops marched in. So he counted the number of people who died in his own building because soldiers shot randomly. He, he counted, went outside and counted roughly uh, 100 holes in the in, in in the wall of his building. The son of 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 a. Um, of a procurate uh, lawyer was found dead with a dum-dum in the head. Uh, a, a maid was also shot by, by accident. And that's just one building on the way, on the road towards Tiananmen Square. Didn't he serve as Mao's personal secretary? He was Mao's personal secretary and was then, of course, uh, purged, meaning uh, sent sent to prison or house arrest. For 20 from 19 years. Yes, indeed. 20 years. In 1957, for speaking out uh, against, 59, sorry, for speaking out against that huge famine that claimed tens of millions of lives. He was purged for 20 years, and he gradually became a committed Democrat. He's the clear example of somebody who has profoundly changed his mind. You can tell it from the diaries, and is is somebody who's convinced that the only way out is separation of powers. There's no, there's no way you can somehow tinkle with the system and make it work. But nobody listened to him. 
No, no. Also, he had to operate within that system, so he had to stay coy. Now, China expert Ian Baruma wrote recently that China's economic slowdown is structural. As it has grown wealthier, its labor force has become more expensive, diminishing the country's attractiveness as the factory of the world. Yes, well, very true. It's, be it's becoming less attractive for all sorts of reasons. And, and this is, I think, um, the, the, the tragedy that will unfold over the coming years, namely that there is a mountain of that, some of which Beijing knows of, some of which it doesn't know, hidden hidden debt. And that mountain of that uh, is, is structural, that there's no way you can get around it. So economists tell us that the way to address the issue here is to promote consumption. But you got to remember what I said earlier on, the greatest share of GDP of growth goes towards the state, not towards ordinary households, ordinary people. So without political reform, People cannot become consumers. There's not going to be any increased consumption. And how so much production is down? And how consumption much, is down. How much impact did the three years of COVID nineteen lockdowns have? Enormous. Again, goes back to what I said earlier on. Zheng politics come first. <laughs> in 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 um, in 2020, the early months of 2020, when COVID was acknowledged to exist, of course, of course they knew about, they had already known about this for several months. But the slogan then was, politics first and science is second. That was the slogan. But it's the same with the economy. It's the same with the lockdowns. You must lock down. That's a political imperative. Regardless of the effects on society, regardless of the economic effects, it's this sort of rigid adherence to whatever the man in charge commands. You note that China's leadership is, quote, determined to shift the military balance in the South China Sea and the Western Pacific with the goal of preventing the United States from landing military support to their longtime regional allies, primarily Taiwan, Japan and South Korea. Shouldn't the United States and its allies in the Indo-Pacific be um, very concerned John about China's growth in military power and modernization? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand that some of Americans have discovered this recently. Uh, What's well, a great insight. John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State in 1957, uh, came up with the notion of peaceful evolution, uh, by which he said you should help satellite states like Poland and Hungary to develop economically so that they, so that they will evolve into democracies, which is what happened in 89. But he pointed out we should not help China economically because they are determined to displace us out of the Pacific Ocean. That was 1957. I, I imagine few people listened. And now Taiwan is under constant threat. No, Taiwan is not now under constant threat. Taiwan has been under constant threat since 1949. That's a constant. <laughs> okay. It's, My it's not new. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Frank Dakota, D-I-K-O-T-T-E-R. 
his latest book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower from Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What do you make of the Chinese spy balloons and, and provocations with U.S. boats and planes? I am a historian. I like to wait a while and see what the evidence is. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm not a China watcher. I think their record is dismal. They got it wrong for the last 30, 40 years. So I'm not going to join the ranks and speculate. On the other hand, does it really come as a surprise that a country that describes the United States as the key uh, the core of the imperialist camp would, would try to spy as much as it can. Doesn't is that surprising? No, no. It, but a lot has happened since your book was published last year. Uh, mm. After his recent meetings with Xi Jinping, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said progress has been made toward steering relations back on track. Based on what you've written here. Do you see that as likely, or are we just going to have more give and take? Uh, there is no back on track. There's no such thing. You're facing an antagonistic uh, entity. I think what he might mean is that there has to be some communication in order to make sure that no one party in there makes a mistake and pushes some button when it's not necessary. You point out that China, after Mao, has weaknesses and vulnerabilities, including an aging population, a wolf warrior diplomacy that alienates other countries, and an economic slowdown that undermines the, regime, the regime's legitimacy. So uh, where do we stand here? Is, is China... Um, not as dangerous as it's, it appears to be? Well, it's not a matter of size. It's a matter of what you do with what you have. Take the example of North Korea. Its economy is nowhere near that of the People's Republic of China, yet very obviously it's a great threat because it has so many missiles. So I think the point really is that even... or Particularly, if there was going to be a, a really long, sustained economic, uh, not, I'm, I'm, I hesitate to say slowdown. I think it's more a sort of economic involution. Uh, then it might very well be that there is a temptation to come up with some sort of scenario to distract the attention of ordinary people away from that economic um, involution. China's also <laughs> been building ghost cities, dozens of ghost cities with new apartment buildings, roads and bridges, but no people. What's that all about? Do you know? Well, it's, it's a common misconception, I think, to imagine that communist socialist regimes uh, always suffer from from undersupply. When you think about the Soviet Union, China under Mao, you think of long queues, not enough stuff, not enough food. But oversupply is always, also a problem. When you have major state enterprises that survive thanks to very cheap credit, 
obviously distributed by state banks for political purposes, and that continue to produce and produce and produce, even though it doesn't sell. Uh, clearly, that, that's one one of the characteristics of the People's Republic of China. Take 1997, even before the Asian crisis hits in 1997, 2% of growth, or one-fifth of all output in the People's Republic of China uh, ends up in warehouses gathering dust. It's never sold. Uh, it's the equivalent. The warehouses are equivalent to something like 68 square kilometers. That was more than 20 years ago, but this continues. Now, there's, an, there's some sort of political imperative to maintaining these state enterprises, and they continue to do what they do, including, of course, building. So you build your city. Nobody moves in. Well, never mind. You build another one somewhere else. It just continues. So you just keep the industry the, moving. Yes. It's, it's the classic lack of link between supply and demand. But hasn't that stimulus been financed by an explosive debt bubble that Beijing has shown little willingness or ability to deflate? Well, yes, of course, because this is all it can do, pour more money uh, into infrastructure. And why is it the only thing it can do? Uh, because it is unable to stimulate consumption in order to move away from massive infrastructure projects. It would have to actually uh, be able to to get more consumption from ordinary people. But that will not happen for the reasons I pointed out, namely that ordinary people live uh, on very modest sums of money and are very keen to save as much as they can. Do we see any hints about what's happened in the modern era in older Chinese history? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I, I, I can see how there is a temptation to go back, you know, not just 50 years, but say 500 years and talk about some sort of imperial Chinese model. But this is a profoundly communism, democracy, uh, a very modern political systems. Uh, they've quite radically transformed um, the way people live their lives, the economic infrastructure, the whole culture, all of it is would be unrecognizable to someone coming straight from, say, the Tang or the Song Dynasty. And of course, not just in China, around the globe. We live in a profoundly modern world with profoundly modern problems. We have about five minutes left, and I was wondering if there were things that you wanted to add that that I haven't addressed. No, I think you've been very good. You, you really pointed out all the key, all the key points, including the the four cardinal principles. Everyone who wants to say something about China should be compelled to learn those four cardinal principles by heart. But um, I'll tell you one little story about John Foster Dulles and his notion of peaceful evolution. Um, as you know, on June the 4th, 1989, the tanks moved into Tiananmen Square. But that very same day, the people in Poland voted themselves out of communism. Hmm. And this was a real shock. Not just that the people in Beijing protested, but the people in Poland voted themselves out of communism. So from that moment onwards, the notion of peaceful evolution becomes a, tea, a key target of the Communist Party. So whenever someone like Bill Clinton or, or, or Reagan or, or anyone else mentions the term peaceful evolution into a democracy, 
this is all the evidence the regime needs to confirm its belief that those imperialist countries out there want to overthrow the party and terminate communism. And you say so the that, that's the key. And you say the Communist Party's goal was never to join the democratic world, but to resist exactly. it and ultimately exactly. defeat it? Exactly. Do they feel that they're doing a good job? Because uh, Well, they certainly thought in 2008, with the financial crisis, first in the United States and elsewhere, they certainly, they certainly thought that that was that moment they had been waiting for, that, that moment that Marx had predicted, the collapse of capitalism. And for a couple of years after 2008, of course, Hu Jintao, other leaders go around the world lecturing everybody at Davos and elsewhere about the merits of socialism with Chinese characteristics. Hu Jintao calls it the China way. So, yes, there's a moment they thought we will prevail. Our system will finally prevail and become dominant on planet Earth. Do you have any sense of what... Donald Trump was thinking when he was cozying up to Xi Jinping? I don't think anybody knows. Does Trump know? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either about that. <laughs> but, so the one thing he did do is identify China as a part of the world one should think about a little bit harder. Uh, okay. Well, if China has been doing, as I said, has been engaging in a number of provocations, uh, uh, although you don't want to talk about those things because uh, they're not history yet. Uh, mm. But don't you see them as part of uh, the overall plan or uh, to to become the the number one country in the world? Is that what they, they envision? Well, the issue here is that it is re recently or the past few years, there's been this notion that China wants to have its dominant position in, in Asia, in the Pacific. But that's not really logical. I mean, you, you cannot really dominate the Pacific without dominating all the islands. I mean, the Japanese understood that pretty well when they attacked Pearl Harbor. In other words, th there is no di division of the world into you know, the Americans in the West and the PRC in the East. It's, it's, not like it, it's not like that. I mean, either you are the dominating power or, or you are not. Why is Taiwan so important to China? Can't they just let it be? Well, think think of Cuba as being even closer than it already is to the United States. And then think of Cuba uh, being very closely linked to, let's say, the People's Republic of China since the Soviet Union has disappeared. Uh, that's the vision from Beijing. It's like a, an enormous uh, battleship, Taiwan, right there, Easy access to both Shanghai and Beijing with missiles is perceived as an enormous threat. It is perceived as an outcrop of the imperialist camp and a threatening one of that. Now, this book was published last year. Uh, would you have added anything 
if you were doing a, an update? Um, I wouldn't do an update because I'm a historian, but also because I live in Hong Kong, so it's prudent not to go too far. And living in Hong Kong, do you feel the presence of China on the back of your neck? Oh, we've always felt it. We've always felt it. Well, I thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, my guest has been Frank Dakota, Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong, but also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of a number of books on China. The one we've been discussing, a major history, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, published by Bloomsbury. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Uh, before I sign off today, I hope you'll elect today to support WBAI to keep this station and the show coming to you. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2, WBAI.org. Because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower by Frank Dakota. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for 10 15 $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. It allows us to plan for the future. And then you can keep it going as long as you wish. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because we rely totally at the station on listener donations. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your support is tax-deductible. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Jeffrey Tubin discussing his new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of, of Right-Wing Extremism. We'll see you then.